All right, uh, we are back. I think we should talk about this article in the B titled Deal Could Revive UC Davis Newspaper. Piece by Richard Chang on SACB.com notes that a for-profit firm is interested in selling ads in a print version of the Aggie. To quote from the piece, two months after going out of print, the UC Davis student newspaper appears to be making a comeback. The California Aggie is poised to sign a deal with the Vacaville Reporter, which would print the Aggie in exchange for the right to sell advertising. Vacaville Reporter publisher Jim Gleam said he believes the venture could be profitable for his company, Digital First Media, but added the partnership was driven by his affinity for college publications. The nearly 100-year-old college paper stopped printing in March after running out of cash. Over the previous year, it had begun publishing weekly and cut circulation by more than half. An attempt to impose a student fee of $11 to support the publication passed in February with nearly 73% of the vote. But the result got invalidated by a student court, citing election irregularities. Well, we intend to bring Elizabeth Orpina back to talk about uh, these developments at the Aggie and what happened last March in the wake of this uh, election invalidation. Elizabeth gets a hold of us. We'll put her on this week's program. If not, we'll try and bring her on next. In the meantime, let's talk about another startling development in the world of uh, student relationships with their college. Uh, in Chicago, it was noted that in March of this year, a regional director of the National Labor Relations Board ruled that a group of Northwestern football players were employees of the university and have the right to form a union and bargain collectively. It's been noted that for decades, the NCAA and college sports have functioned on the bedrock principle of the student-athlete, with players rewarded with scholarships to compete for their university. But Peter Orr, the regional NLRB director, tore down that familiar construct in a 24-page decision. He ruled that all Northwestern scholarship football players should be eligible to form a union based on a litany of factors, including how much time they devote to football, as many as 50 hours during the week, the control exerted by the coaching staff, and their scholarships, which Orr deemed a contract for compensation. This is interesting. We're going to have to bring back our sports correspondent, Sean Minton, to talk about this because I'm sure Sean's going to have an opinion or two on this matter. We'll take a moment to thank Gary Chu for his postings and notifications to us that uh, Frontline is putting out some pretty interesting and worthwhile specials on the relationship of the NSA to all of us and how they're spying on us, which we now a great deal about, thanks to Edward Snowden, needs to get a very hard look. If you missed the first part of the United States of Secrets, part two is on next week on the 20th. This is one I highly recommend all listeners to sit down and watch all the way through. I would also refer you to Terry Gross's excellent Fresh Air program and her interview with Glenn Greenwald conducted yesterday. I was curious watching that Frontline special and noting that there was some optimism among the people in the NSA who knew the government was lying and conducting a vast spying program far beyond what they were acknowledging. These people knew they were in deep trouble when the, the FBI came uh, knocking and tore their houses apart looking for evidence that, of espionage against their own government. This is the Bush uh, Department of Justice. These people took a great deal of uh, comfort 
and noting that the candidacy of Barack Obama appeared to be a breath of fresh air, promising as it did that a lot of this inappropriate spying was going to be curbed. Well, Obama certainly did talk a good fight. It was kind of refreshing to see candidate Obama back in 2008, fresh-faced and talking about all the wonderful things he was going to do. And although we will acknowledge that he does not have the evil outlook that the previous administration did and basically that we're going to do this whether you like it or not, damn it. But it's not like he's, you know, reversed an awful lot of these policies. In fact, there was a piece by NationalJournal.com cited in the week noting that when he ran for president in 2008, Barack Obama inspired a generation of young Americans to shed their apathy and cynicism to vote in record numbers. The millennial generation believed his promise that he transformed Washington. Six years later, Obama has lost them. A comprehensive poll of millennials by the Harvard Institute on Politics reveals deep disappointment in Obama and government in general. In 2010, 51% of Americans aged 18 to 29 said they trusted Obama to, quote, do the right thing, unquote. Now, it's just 32%. The same percentage of young people who said they trusted George W. Bush in 2006. Ouch. I will say one thing about Obama, though. He still has his, uh, his timing down. I guess when you put it at the Gridiron Club, I'm not sure they're still calling it the Gridiron uh, Dinner in Washington. Was it last week or the week before? He, he did have some pretty good lines up there, although it's sort of pathetic to look back and realize, you know, what he's joking about, which is, you know, the, the failed rollout of healthcare.gov and the contentious relationship the White House has with Congress. Reviews of his performance noted the president's routine at the dinner focused mostly on those likely to be vying for the 2016 presidential nomination. Fox News will miss him when he leaves office said Obama, because it will be harder to convince the American people that Hillary Clinton was born in Kenya. Comedian Joel McHale, known for his pop culture satire as the former host of Talk Soup on E! and apparently for his role on the NBC sitcom community, took a sharp-edged approach to the role of comic headliner. Early in his routine, he praised Obama's comedy stylings. McHale said, My favorite was when you said you'd close the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay. That was hilarious. Anyway, since we're kind of t- on a downer moment here, let's, 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 let's talk about some bad news. There's, there's a lot of it. We try not to dwell on it on the program, but sometimes it's just unavoidable. How about this one? Apparently, the Justice Department's prosecution on Blackwater has gone to hell. A piece in the New York Times by Matt Apuzo notes that the team of FBI agents that arrived in Iraq to investigate a shooting involving a private company that provided security for Americans in a war zone, were shocked by what they found. Witnesses described a convoy of Blackwater worldwide contractors firing wildly into a crowded traffic circle in Baghdad the previous month, killing 17. Five Blackwater security guards were indicted on manslaughter and weapons charges, and a sixth entered a plea deal to testify against his former colleagues. But over the years, a case that had once seemed so clear-cut has been repeatedly undermined by the government's own mistakes. Although prosecutors are trying to hold together what's left of the case, charges against one contractor were dropped last year because of lack of evidence. And the government suffered another self-inflicted setback in April when a federal appeals court ruled that the prosecution had missed a deadline and allowed the statute of limitations to, to expire against a second contractor. And uh, somewhere along the way, after one of the... Uh, quote, contractors, unquote, pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter, a federal judge dismissed the charges, citing the Justice Department's reckless behavior. 
most unfortunate. And we have to say a word or two about the fact that uh, Pope John Paul II was canonized along with Pope John XXIII. In a rather unusual ceremony where two popes, as we have two right now, canonized two previous popes. They just had quite a pope fest over there in the Vatican City. Yes, apparently the, the square in front of St. Peter's was filled with Polish immigrants who came to celebrate Pope John Paul II, a national hero in Poland. But um, sounding a sour note on that was Ignace Genere, writing in Le Temps in Switzerland, said that one thing missing from Poland's celebration of its native pope was an admission of his greatest papal error. There was no mention of John Paul's utter lack of respect to the sex abuse crisis that exploded during his papacy as pedophile priests were protected and shuffled from parish to parish. Still, most Catholics know that even a saint is not a perfect man. Adding all canonizations, including this one, are recognitions partly of devotion and partly of political considerations. Now, Mr. McMillan has raised the question about the performance of miracles, which, yes, to my understanding, is one of the things you have to do to be awarded sainthood. But my knowledge is rather imperfectly based on a Don Novello bit on Saturday Night Live portraying Father Guido Sarducci, where, in character, Father Guido <laughs> was running down a couple of prospective uh, saints, noting that uh, they have to do three miracles. And you know, in his case, I have it on a good authority that the two of them were card tricks. And no, I'm sorry, it's not a better Italian accent. Here's a perennial story we have to cite yet again. Apparently, according to the Associated Press a few weeks back, America's skepticism of science is growing. 51% of Americans doubt that the universe was created by a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. 42% doubt evolution. 37% doubt climate change, or at least that it's caused by man. And 15% question the safety of vaccines. Now, we don't have it in front of us, the stat of how many people believe that the sun goes around the earth. But I remember being flabbergasted several years ago that it was something like, you know, 32%. And, and, and no, Mr. McMillan, the earth goes around the sun. When you're looking for succinct summaries of bad news, cartoonists are, are people that can sometimes rise to the occasion. There was one in The Economist a few weeks back that I had to cut out <laughs> and wait for the moment to cite. And I guess this is that moment. It shows planet Earth in a wheelchair at an addiction clinic. An IV is flowing into the body labeled oil. A man accompanying the patient, planet Earth, says, Doc, I think this fellow's on drugs. Citing the IPCC climate change report, the man says, Fortunately, there's a new report that says he can quit without major issues. It just requires all the world's nations to assemble and agree to radically change the foundations of their economies in an orderly fashion over an extended period of time. I, for one, think this can be done. In the final panel, the addicted planet Earth addresses the doc and said, Doc, I think this fellow's on drugs. And yeah, it brings up a real issue. Christopher Hayes, writing in The Nation, noted that... Um, as regards climate change and people that want to do something about it, comparing anything to the abolition of slavery is always treacherous terrain. But when it comes to the challenges of tackling climate change, there really is no other precedent. For this planet to survive in any recognizable form, scientists say, we have to limit the amount of global warming to about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. To do so, 
we somehow need to persuade major nations and the largest oil and gas firms to leave from $10 trillion to $20 trillion worth of fossil fuels in the ground. The only other time an industry has given up that much wealth was back in 1865 when the South was forced to surrender the slaves, but only after the bloodiest, most horrific war we've ever fought. It's admittedly an imperfect analogy, but it does illustrate the enormity of the challenge facing environmentalists. To save the Earth from catastrophic climate change, melting ice caps, rising sea levels, extended droughts, famines, etc., climate justice activists must persuade big oil to accept the abolition of fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a tall order. And meanwhile, down at the South Pole, an admittedly rare segue, we have the news that two teams of scientists released papers this week that reached the same terrifying conclusion. A significant chunk of the West Antarctic ice sheet has begun to disintegrate. And owing to the ice sheet's peculiar topography, much of it lies below sea level, this process, having begun, has now also become unstoppable. The lead author of one of the papers, Eric Rignot, said, Today we present observational evidence that a large section of the West Antarctic ice sheet has gone into irreversible retreat. It has passed the point of no return. Rignot said that melting in the section of the West Antarctic that his team has studied could cause global sea levels to rise by four feet over the course of a couple centuries. But since the disappearance of some of its major glaciers would quite possibly destabilize the entire ice sheet, the ultimate sea level rise from West Antarctica, he said, could be triple that. Adding to that was Stefan Ramsdorf, professor of physics of the oceans at Potsdam University, who said this is scary. One of the feared tipping points of the climate system appears to have been crossed. In fact, a headline on the website of Mother Jones said, this is what a holy crap moment for global warming looks like. All right, enough said about that. We mentioned in the first segment about some peculiar things going on in Mexico, and, and we need to talk about those, I think. Mexico is not following the playbook of the National Rifle Association. Mexican vigilantes down there have taken over Sinaloa from drug cartels and then registered their weapons. The quote from an article by Tracy Wilkinson in the LA Times, they noted that uh, a farmer uh, nicknamed Papa Pintufo has emerged as the senior leader of the vigilante movement that has taken over a large swath of wealthy Michoacan state, one of the world's top producers of avocados and limes but dominated for nearly a decade by ruthless drug cartels. For the first time in modern Mexican history, an armed civilian band has ejected a drug cartel from its environs. For now, the members of the so-called Knights Templar are lying low, challenged by rebelling citizens, including some who have returned to their family homes from California, finally fed up with unrelenting extortion, kidnapping, arson, rapes, and killings. What's curious is the vigilantes, who have had marked success apparently, are proving to be a major challenge to the young government of President Enrique Peña Nieto, making clear that official security forces have been unable to protect their own people. Initially, federal forces tried to cooperate with the vigilantes. Now, fearing what's described as a Frankenstein-like scenario, authorities are trying to rein them in. Saturday was the federally imposed deadline in Michoacan for thousands of self-defense forces, as they call themselves, to register their weapons and formally disband. 
Apparently, as of the weekend, 3,300 people had signed up, and more than 6,000 weapons were registered. The piece notes that this, too, is unprecedented. No other Mexican state allows ordinary citizens to legally retain AK-47s and other military-style assault weapons. So, does this prove the NRA's had a point all along when the gun advocates are right when they claim that an armed citizenry can do the right thing? It seems so. <laughs> I just wonder if the NRA's problem with even talking about this is the fact that afterwards they registered their guns. We, we can't have that. The piece does note that by no means has violence completely subsided in Michoacan. Broad daylight shootouts and instances of bodies dumped on roadsides have diminished, but few are fully confident that the Knights Templar won't return and unleash a brutal wave of revenge killings. It's noted that some of the vigilante groups have apparently been infiltrated by criminals, are corrupted, and are perhaps out of control. We'll see. I do want to note, in a not-related story, that I was depressed to learn that our neighborhood groups in East Sacramento that were doing our best to fight the uh, ill-advised development of the McKinley Village Project, which Angelo Sacopoulos and Phil Angelides, some of our political heavyweights in the capital are pushing for their own personal profit. Well, the groups opposing them had, in fact, been infiltrated. I won't tell you how I learned about this, but I accept the source as being a reliable one. All right, headline from USA Today, piece by Tom Vandenbroek. U.S. to destroy $1 billion in ammo. Subheadline, potential waste as Data systems can't ID viable arsenal. Notes the piece. The Pentagon plans to destroy more than $1 billion worth of ammunition, although some of those bullets and missiles could still be used by troops, according to the Pentagon and congressional sources. It goes on. It's impossible to know what portion of the arsenal slated for destruction, valued at $1.2 billion by the Pentagon, remains viable because the Defense Department's inventory systems can't share data effectively, according to a Government Accountability Office report obtained by USA Today. The result? Potential waste of unknown value. Apparently, the Army and Pentagon in a statement acknowledged the need to automate the process and will make it a priority in future budgets. In all, the Pentagon manages conventional ammunition worth $70 billion. This report apparently illustrates the obsolete nature of the Pentagon's inventory systems for ammunition. A request for ammunition for the Marine Corps, for example, is emailed to the Army. The email is printed out and manually retyped into the Army system because the services cannot share data directly. Not only is this time-consuming, duh, but it can also introduce errors by an incorrect keystroke, for example. And believe it or not... Those uh, camo uniforms that uh, we see our military men wearing, well, they're completely dependent upon which branch of services they are in. The Economist notes that, remarkably, the Department of Defense has no single department dedicated to researching, developing, and procuring the best uniforms for all troops. They note this caused no problem before 2002, when nearly every serviceman had a choice between a greenish camouflage uniform or a coffee-stained desert pattern. But over the past 12 years, the services have each created their own style of camouflage. The effect has been both costly and occasionally embarrassing. Peace notes the Marines led the way in 2002 with a versatile and effective new combat uniform, which also served to boost core morale because the Marine insignia was embedded in the design. This inspired a cascade of one-upmanship among the other services. 
The Air Force, for instance, spent several years and more than $3 million developing a new Tiger Stripe uniform that proved unsuitable for combat. Yeah, it turned out the camouflage was ineffective, the trousers were uncomfortable, and the fabric was too heavy, leading to what's described as heat buildup. I probably should try to read this with a British accent, because it would just make the diction uh, so much more amusing, I think. Let's try it. The Navy spent a lot less money developing the aquaflage uniform, but that is a silly blue ensemble that works best where sailors may least wish to blend in. The water. The worst offender has been the Army. The service spent years and about $3.2 million developing its own, quote, universal, unquote, camouflage. This pattern was designed to work anywhere, but proved useless nearly everywhere. Soon after it was introduced in 2005, soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan began complaining that the pattern turned them into targets. Reports suggest that a high-ranking military official had chosen the pattern without consulting the data from years of studies. And the economists couldn't resist signing off on America, Afghanistan, and opium, noting that when America invaded Afghanistan to wage war on terrorism, once there it found itself waging war on drugs, too. In fact, the American taxpayer has spent more than $10 billion trying to suppress the opium trade in Afghanistan. And for what? asks the magazine. Afghan farmers planted 200,000 hectares with opium poppies in 2013. A new record! John Sopko, the American official whose job is to oversee how Uncle Sam's money is spent in Afghanistan, told National Public Radio, If the goal was to reduce cultivation, we failed. If the goal was to reduce opium production, we failed. If the goal was to break that narco-trafficking nexus and the corrupting influence, we have failed. But wait, it gets worse. Other analysts think the money was worse than wasted. Efforts to pull up poppies and shut down opium labs have been focused in the areas least hostile to American forces, for the obvious reason that anti-drug police are less likely to get killed there. This has displaced production into Taliban-controlled areas, at least so argues Jeffrey Clements, an economist at UC San Diego, and therefore it has enriched America's enemies. And boy, do we need a break. But before we go, let's note uh, a piece from well over a year ago that we made passing mention of on the show, but I think we should make mention of again. There was an analysis in USA Today about the price of war and what future generations are going to have to pay. Paul McGough noted that George W. Bush rated barely a mention in the race for the White House. This This was in 2012. But his legacy lingers in any attempt to wrestle with Washington's record budget deficit, now at a dizzying U.S. $16 trillion. What was described as a graphic presentation by the Center on Budget Policy and Priorities in late 2012, the impact of the Bush policies on national debt in the coming years is represented by bands of blue and gold. One is a near constant over the years, the borrowing for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Another, which yawns into the future like a bugle, depicts the Bush tax cuts, which also went on to the national credit card. Here Bush made history. Not only did he wage wars in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks on New York and Washington without raising taxes to fund them, he implemented juicy tax cuts, instructing Americans to go shopping or take their families to Disney World. It was too good to last, of course, and Bush quit the White House as the U.S. economy was on the brink of collapse. 
I guess it's good to pause every so often, look at the disappointment that Obama has been, and remind ourselves that it was a lot worse not that long ago. And we're still trying to dig out from under that mess. And let's see if we can't dig out from under this segment by taking a breather. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to lighten the mood in segment three, I hope.